There. Welcome to our Soul Food Broadcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. We're going to be covering the entire chapter this morning in the interest of time. I'm not going to read it, but we will go through verse by verse. I do ask you to pray with me, though. Lord, there are so many requests here this morning, so much pain that we have in our world. And we know that you are the only comfort. You are the only one that can come through for us in times like this when life makes no sense. And so, Father, we just offer up all those requests to you this morning. You know what each individual situation needs, and you are the only one who can meet those needs. And we just ask that you would do that, Lord. We pray for your word this morning, Father, that it would do that with, within us that only it can do. That is to change us, make us a little bit more like Christ. Don't let us walk out of here, Lord, the same way that we came in. We ask in Christ's name, amen. If you recall from our study in chapter 11, Saul just led the Israelites to a resounding victory over the Ammonites. And he's riding high on this popularity as we enter into chapter 12. So look at verse 1 with me. Saul reigned one year, and when he had reigned two years over Israel, Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 men were with Saul in Michmash and in the mountains of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent away, every man to his tent. And Jonathan attacked the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. Now all Israel heard it said that Saul had attacked the garrison of the Philistines, and that Israel had also become an abomination to the Philistines. And the people were called together to Saul at Gilgal. And so we move to the history of Saul as king. Saul was 30 when he began his reign, and he reigned for 40 years. It was a long reign, but sadly it wasn't a very good one. In fact, the decline of Saul's leadership begins fairly early in his life as king. In this chapter, I think I'll be able to sustain the thesis that I presented in chapter 9 relative to King Saul. Saul's outward veneer made him look like a king, but underneath, he was no king at all. He was a papier-mâché king. The narrative in chapters 13 through 15 focuses on Saul's early reign and especially his relationship to God and to Samuel. We see Saul making foolish and unwise choices and trying to to cover his disobedience with lies. It was the beginning of a tragic decline that ended in a witch's house and Saul's suicide on a battlefield. The account of Saul's reign begins with a snapshot of a military situation. And it's here that we learn that Saul formed Israel's first standing army. Saul's camp was at Michmash, and Jonathan's was about 15 miles away in Gibeah. The fact that Israel was mustering an army put the Philistines on alert. This is the first time that we hear of Jonathan. 
very soon he will be introduced to us properly, and we will learn that he was Saul's son. And we will hear much more of him as we make our way through the book of 1 Samuel. It would appear from verses 3 and 4 that it was Jonathan who slew the Philistines, but Saul blew the trumpet, trying to make it appear as though the victory was his own. Saul believed in the motto, He who tooteth not his own horn, said horn shall go untooted. And it's really sad, though, because gifts had been given to Saul, and grace had been poured out upon him. But we will now see the cracks in his character that will lead to his tragic downfall. We read nothing of Jonathan challenging this false information. Already we see the humility of Jonathan, which as we make our way through this book will be evident time and time again. One thing I want us to remember is that the limb that bears the most fruit always hangs the lowest. What do I mean? If we are truly fruitful, there will never be a need for us to lift ourselves up but instead we will bend down in humility. That makes little sense in this world of look out for number one. I mean, who with any self-respect and dignity would want to live like that? Well, I only know of one person who did it perfectly, and it's that crucified Nazarene that we should all want to follow and to emulate. Listen to how Paul describes Jesus as our example in Philippians 2. He writes, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not look merely for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. You may be a lot more holy and sanctified than I am, but just those two verses could keep me busy the rest of my life. Why? Well, listen to the rest of the passage. Have this attitude in yourselves that was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross." Do we understand what that's saying to us this morning? None of us are higher or more holy than Jesus. And not yet, not only did he become a servant, his humility didn't end until he was finally crucified. So what that means is there's absolutely no one that we are superior to and nothing we shouldn't be willing to do if the Lord would ask it of us. C.S. Lewis recounts when he first started going to church, he disliked the hymns, which he considered to be fifth-rate poems set to sixth-rate music. But as he continued in his life, he said, I realized that the hymns were nevertheless being sung with devotion and benefit by an old saint in plastic side boots in the opposite pew. And then you realize that you aren't even fit to clean those boots. It gets you out of your solitary conceit. That's good advice by Mr. Lewis. Our lives should all be marked by humility. Verse 5. Then the Philistines gathered together to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and people as the sandwiches on the seashore in multitude. And they came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon, 
When the men of Israel saw that they were in danger, for the people were distressed, then the people hid in caves, in thickets, in rocks, in holes, and in pits. And some of the Hebrews crossed over the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. As for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. We know that God delivered the nation of Israel by the hand of Gideon with only 300 men against impossible odds. If he did it before, he could do it again. God doesn't need armies to ensure victory. God doesn't need impressive numbers to cause kings to kneel and surrender. He only needs the faith and the trust of his own people. God didn't need Saul or his 600 men. If you look ahead to the next chapter, you will discover that God won that battle with only two men and a mighty earthquake. Jonathan and his armor bearer was the only army that God needed. But I want us to notice the beginning of verse 5. It says that the Philistines gathered together to fight against Israel. But wait, I thought we just beat those guys a few verses ago. That's exactly my point. We need to realize that any time that we fight and win a spiritual battle, we can be sure that the enemy is always preparing and regrouping for another attack. The perfect example is the Lord's temptation in the wilderness. Three times he was tempted and three times he was victorious. But listen to the words of Luke 4.13. Now when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. That last phrase is troubling, isn't it? An opportune time. I want to give you an analogy to think on this week, that of the prowling lion. The Bible tells us, be alert and sober-minded. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, 1 Peter 5-7. Picture how the lion hunts. He just doesn't jump amongst his prey and start chasing, hoping to catch one. No, instead, he stays back watching. He watches the herd, and he waits. He watches to find the weakest among them, and then he waits until an opportune time to attack that weakling, and then he makes his attack. When Jesus was led to the desert for 40 days of fasting, the lion watched until he was weak. And once weak, then Satan approached him and began to try to tempt him. Yet Jesus withstood the temptation. He stayed focused on God, and Satan had to leave. But the words I want you to notice are this. He left until an opportune time. Satan left until a more favorable time. He's always watching, and he's always waiting. So what are we to do? One, I want us to hold fast because Jesus has already conquered Satan, and we as his followers are on the winning side. We are not fighting for victory. We are already fighting from the standpoint of victory. We no longer have to fight the war, but we do have to stand strong in the knowledge of what our Savior has done for us. Ephesians 6 says it like this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, 
against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when that day of evil comes, you will be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled about your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of the salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayer and request. With this in mind, be alert and always keep praying for the Lord's people. Now, I'm not going to stand up here and tell you that we're not going to lose a battle to the enemy those times that we decide to let our guard down. But the ultimate victory for the Christian is completely assured. That's why Christ screamed from the cross, it is finished. I'm going to try to explain it to us in contemporary language. It's like the war in Iraq. Technically, that war was over. We declared victory when we drove Saddam Hussein out of power. We declared victory when the new Iraqi government was installed. But even though Hussein had been defeated and the victory had been won, we found out that the enemy had a lot more fight than what we thought. There were still pockets of resistance in places like Fallujah. There were little skirmishes that made life difficult for our soldiers. Well, the same thing is true with the war on sin. When you accepted Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, victory was declared in your life. Satan was removed from power, and the new government of Christ was installed into your life. But we're finding out, aren't we, that the enemy still had a lot more fight than what we had thought. There are still pockets of resistance in our own lives, little skirmishes going on that can make life difficult. And it's not because you're a loser. It's not because you're a failure at the Christian faith. It's because the battle is long and the fight is hard. So stand strong, put on the full armor of God, keep praying, and persevere. Verse 8, please. Then he waited seven days according to the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. So Saul said, Bring a burnt offering and peace offerings here to me. And he offered the burnt offering. As Samuel had commanded, Saul waited for the seven days. But the longer he waited, the more concerned he became. His army was melting away. The enemy was mobilizing and the situation looked completely hopeless. And because of his panic, he went ahead and offered the burnt offering. He should have waited for the prophet Samuel, who had promised to come and offer the burnt offering himself. We read of this back in 1 Samuel 10.8. This is Samuel speaking to Saul about this very thing. You shall go down before me to Gilgal, and surely I will come down to you to offer burnt offerings and make sacrifices of peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait till I come and show you what you should do. But Saul, in a state of panic, was disobedient to the command of Saul, or Samuel, I'm sorry. I can give us all kinds of advice and recommendations, but it's only when we obey God that life will ever work right. The sage was right when he said that the brave man is not braver than any other, but simply braver for ten minutes longer. Who is the brave man? 
who is the mature brother, the wise sister, the deep Christian among us, it's not necessarily the one who seems super spiritual. It's simply the one who has learned to wait and not to panic. Verse 10. Now it happened that as soon as he had finished presenting the burnt offering that Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him that he might greet him. And Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattered from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines gathered together at Michmash, then I said, The Philistines will now come down on me at Gilgal and I have not made supplication to the Lord. Therefore I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. Saul was not willing to wait for Samuel. He was impatient and presumptuous. He thought he had three good reasons for not waiting for Samuel to appear. One, the people were scattered. Two, the Philistines were coming against him. And three, Samuel, in his opinion, was a little late on arriving. Saul was rationalizing this, of course. He was blaming everyone and everything else. Immediately, Saul began to make excuses. In chapter 13, he blamed Samuel. In chapter 14, he will blame Jonathan. And in chapter 15, he will blame all the people. Saul never blamed himself. He was simply good at making excuses. You know one thing I've learned over the years? People who are good at making excuses are rarely good at anything else. Once a person gets good at making excuses, that's about all they're good for. It was foolish for Saul to think he could disobey God and get away with it, and that his disobedience could somehow bring God's blessing upon him and his army. Romans 3.8 warns us that when we think, let us do evil, that good may come, is the logic of hell, not the lucidity of heaven. Saul was playing the hypocrite, though, and acting as if he had done nothing wrong. First John 1 John 1.6 says, If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in the darkness, we lie, and the truth is not in us. Saul consisted in blaming Samuel and the soldiers and not himself. It was Samuel's fault for arriving late and the army's fault for deserting their king. I think his words, I saw, indicate that Saul was walking by sight, and not by faith. Saul thought he'd waited the full seven days, but seven days hadn't completely passed. He didn't wait the full course. If Saul would have just waited a few minutes more, everything would have been all right. But his impatience cost him dearly. Please know today that the last few minutes of your trial is often the greatest test of your faith. At the very end of your trial, things frequently will not look good at all. That's when we can't fix our eyes upon our surroundings. We have to fix our eyes upon Christ. Trust God's word at those times, not only what you see. You see, our faith and our patience goes hand in hand. Isaiah 40:31 reminds us, But those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. And you know what? The opposite of that also holds true. James 1 tells us, 
If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. This man should not think that he would receive anything from the Lord, because he is an unstable man in all that he does. No sooner had Saul finished offering the sacrifice than Samuel showed up. That is so often the way it is with God. Often the Lord waits in the last possible moment to step into our situation. Why? It's not to tease us. It's to test us. He takes us right down to the wire, not to taunt us, but to train us in order that we might have endurance. The Lord is always faithful. He has never once failed me, but he has scared me to death a few times. You see, the race we run as believers isn't a sprint. It's a long, long marathon. And God knows how desperately we need endurance And the only way to get endurance is to go through times of trials and testing that force us to wait upon him in order that we might not panic, that we might not run off the track and throw in the towel. C.H. Spurgeon said, The snails made it safely to the ark because they had endurance. You might be a snail. I might be a slug. We may move very, very slowly. But we will make it to the ark because we simply endured. Yet it's so easy to freak out when times get tough. Time is running out, we cry. We've got to do something. Or in a moment of spirituality, we pray something like, Lord, make me a man or woman of God, producing me a depth of character and of wisdom. Okay, God says, I'm going to take you through some experiences in which you will have the choice to either panic and try to solve the problem by sacrificing this or looking to them or relying on that or to just simply trust me. hope we all realize that trusting God is always the best course because the Scripture says, Vain is the help of man. Verse 13, And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Saul's sin at Gilgal cost him the dynasty. And his sin involving the sacrifice will cost him the kingdom. He eventually will lose the crown and his very own life. Verse 14 says, The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. We know this is speaking of King David because we find this commentary in Acts chapter 13. After these things, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. After he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Now let me ask you, was David perfect? 
No. He committed adultery and even murder. But he always repented. But the essence of who David really was was a man who loved God and wanted to please him. One author said that David's life reminded him of a compass needle. It wiggled quite a bit from side to side, but it always returned to true north. Verse 15, please. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin, and Saul numbered the people present with him, about 600 men. Saul, Jonathan, his son, and the people present with them remained in Gibeah of Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped in Michmash. Then raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned to the road of Oprah, the other to the land of Winfrey. Sorry about that. I don't know why I'm like, I'm sorry. The other to the land of Shul. Another company turned the road to Beth Haran, and another company turned the road to the border that overlooks the valley of Seboyim towards the wilderness. Basically, those verses just tell us where everybody went. That is the extent of the profound commentary I have for you on that. Verse 19. Now, there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make swords or spears. But all the Israelites would go down to the Philistines to sharpen each man's plowshare, his mattock, his axe, and his sickle. And the charge for a sharpening was a pen for the plowshares, the mattocks, the forks, and the axes, and to set the points of the goads. So it came about on the day of battle that there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan, but they were found with Saul and Jonathan his son. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. We're now given the info that the Philistines have iron weapons and the Israelites do not. This is one of those historical tidbits that pop up every now and then. The world was moving out of the Bronze Age and into the Iron Age. And the Philistines were the first in the region to develop the use of iron primarily for military weapons. So their advantage is quite considerable. I've heard people joking about bringing a knife to a gunfight But this is even worse. Saul's army has no spears, shields, or axes. At best, they may have had a few slings. But what good is that when facing a well-armed militia with armor? Imagine having to face a tank with some sticks and rocks. And to add insult to injury, the Israelites had to go to the Philistines to sharpen all their farming implements. And that way, the enemy could keep an accurate count of what the Israelites Israelites had in the way of weaponry. When the Philistines controlled the country, they would not allow the men of Israel to have swords. So to sharpen their plowshares and their other implements of farming, the Israelites had to go to the Philistines. And just like that, it's always the way of the enemy to take your sword. You can still farm You can still work. I'll give you tools, Satan says. I'll help you financially or educationally. I'll give you the instruments you need to succeed in everything secular, but I don't want you to have the sword. You know, self-advice books fill the shelves of many who won't open the sword of the word because Satan has tricked them into thinking that they don't need it. I suggest, however, that the 66th library you hold in your lap contains the only manual that you need to navigate this life. 
The day of the battle in verse 22 sounds menacing. A battle that seemed inevitable since Jonathan had provoked the Philistines with his raid on the garrison that had been at Geba. We cannot help imagining how this battle will eventually turn out. With not only the huge disproportion of numbers in favor of the Philistines, but among the Israelites, only the king and his son had decent weapons. Ominously, we now read, And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. The pass of Michmash was apparently somewhere in the gorge that separated Michmash from Geba. So the scene is now set for the events that will unfold in chapter 14, which we will look at next week. Father, so much in this passage that we can glean from, from having patience and waiting on you to enduring to knowing the importance of the word in your life, in our lives. I pray, Father, you'd make that even more true to us. Let us take the things that we have learned this morning, Lord. Let us ponder them. Let us think about them throughout the week to come. Let us put them into practice. We ask in Christ's name, amen.